from RTE News, this is States of Mind. Donald, you're not going to be able to insult your way to the presidency. Little Buddha touch, Slippy Joe and Crazy Bernie, Mini Mike. I hit Pocahontas way too early. We have a president who is not only a pathological liar. We have a criminal living in the White House. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Let's just pick somebody, please, and let's start this thing. Let's start it. Pick somebody. Your U.S. Election 2020 podcast. With Brian O'Donovan in Washington. And Jackie Fox in Dublin. Today. Right now, I have asked repeatedly for the military to be mobilized. I want to assure the American people that we're doing everything we can each day to confront and ultimately defeat this horrible, invisible enemy. We're at war. On the other hand, I, th- I think he's risen to the occasion. And uh, I think he's doing, I th- he's certainly doing the best that he can. I should really change the opening line of our podcast, Brian, instead of Jackie Fox in Dublin, Jackie Fox from a not so glamorous news fort at home. I don't know about yourself. Yeah, I'm in my basement studio, which of course is not a studio at all. It is just a basement. I've no soundproofing whatsoever. And I have small children being homeschooled upstairs by my ever patient wife. So if we hear any screaming or stomping, please do forgive us. But yeah, we're all home working now, which is the responsible thing to do. So I hope our listeners bear with us if there are any interruptions or different sounds that we're not used to from previous podcasts. I think everybody is in the same boat. How is it over there for you guys at the moment, Brian, watching cable news shows from this side? the Atlantic, like everywhere else, it's uncertainty and panic central. Yeah, same here. Washington, where we are, there's no formal stay in place or shelter in place order. But what has happened is the schools have been shut. Non-essential businesses have been closed. Restaurants are open, but only for takeaway services. And the streets are very, very quiet. I mean, you walk along the National Mall, which would usually be bustling at this time of the year because this is the cherry blossom season. So the beautiful cherry blossom trees are in full bloom. Normally, people would be bustling around looking at them. But actually, the National Park Service had to issue an order at the weekend urging people not to come down and look at the cherry blossom trees because it was just getting too busy. We all like the idea of going out to a park and keeping our social distance but if you're packed with people it becomes impossible so they've had to shut it down. It's kind of the same situation here as well Brian but there is the fear over preparation as well in the United States and it's such a huge part of this especially over a severe lack of medical equipment. We've seen officials in California telling hospitals to restrict coronavirus testing and a hospital in Washington state warning that it could run out of life-preserving ventilators by early next month. Already in New York, there's been a surge in patients with a critical shortage of supplies like ventilators and masks. And Mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, has said this is the biggest crisis the US is facing since the Great Depression. Right now, I have asked repeatedly for the military to be mobilized, for the Defense Production Act to be used to its fullest, to get us things like ventilators so people who can live who would die otherwise. I can't be blunt enough. Folks who are members of families, and we can't get action from the President of the United States. And there's a lot of criticism from those individual states that you mentioned, California, Washington, New York, of US President Donald Trump saying he's not doing enough. What Donald Trump has done here is invoked this Defense Production Act, which is a wartime piece of legislation that a president can use at a time of war to 
urge and force factories to stop producing what they normally produce and instead produce things for the war effort. So in this case, an example would be he would tell the Ford Motor Company to stop making cars and instead start making ventilators. So Donald Trump said he was enacting this piece of legislation, but he hasn't actually acted on it. He hasn't used it to force any companies yet to down tools and stop their normal production line and start up making ventilators or masks or medical equipment or anything that is needed. And that has led to some criticism from those hard-hit states. And they are saying to him, please invoke this and start producing more of these goods that we need, more of this equipment, more of these ventilators. What has happened is that some of those companies have actually started doing this voluntarily. Donald Trump has come out and said, well, that means it's working then. I didn't have to invoke this act, but by merely saying that I might do, it has forced these people to do this voluntarily. And he says, I don't want to be starting nationalizing private companies. He said, I don't want to go down the route of Venezuela. But on the flip side, you have those mayors and those governors and those hard hit cities saying we are running out of medical supplies and we need you to do something fast. And this is all about healthcare and supplies. And that leads into our refresher for this episode. Health insurance in the United States is notoriously expensive and complicated and an extra worry on top of everything you mentioned there for Americans. So you have public programs known as Medicare and Medicaid. They're designed for the elderly, people with disabilities, those on low incomes, everyone else. They need to obtain plans that could be through their employer or on their own. And premiums can have average of hundreds of dollars a month. That's only for individuals. And usually you have to pay a certain amount of medical bills before your insurance even kicks in. And that could be over a thousand dollars before coverage is activated. Without it, obviously, you're still treated in an emergency, but you are responsible for all of your medical expenses and bills, which can be astronomical. Cost has been a concern for many ordinary Americans considering, you know, testing for coronavirus. More than 27 million people in America have no medical insurance at all, while tens of millions have basic insurance that often only covers a fraction of the cost of any checkups or even treatment. And I actually had an example of this at the weekend. My six-year-old daughter, unfortunately, fell while playing and she gave herself a really bad cut on the side of her face. We figured it might need a, a stitch or definitely had to be looked at by a doctor. And of course, in the middle of this virus lockdown, we said, oh my goodness, what, what an awful time for this to happen. But of course, we had to tend to her. And what you were advised to do is do not go straight to the A&E. Do not go straight to the emergency room of your closest hospital. You have to stay within your insurer because you could get whacked with a bill of thousands of dollars if you just randomly rocked up to a, wow. uh, a regular A&E without going through your insurer. So you call your insurer, you were given an appointment at an urgent care centre and you go there. So I took my daughter, thankfully she's fine, she didn't require much treatment, she just needed a small procedure to, to, to help her with, 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 with the injuries she suffered. But it was a very interesting experience to go to this urgent care centre. It was deathly quiet. There was nobody there. They screened you beforehand. If you were coronavirus suspected, you were put into a completely different area. In fact, there were tents and trucks outside to treat people in any situation like that. We, because we were not in that situation, were taken through, seen very quickly. And we paid a very small amount of money on top of our insurance. If we didn't have insurance, we'd probably have been paying thousands. And it acts as a stark reminder to me, Jackie, of how the healthcare system here works. It is all about money, it is all about being insured, and it is incredibly expensive. But you hit on a good point there. Even with your insurance, you still have to pay on top of this. So if we look at the coronavirus situation here right now, the big concern at the start was, 
What about getting a test? And very early on, there was reports of people having to pay thousands just to even get the test. That's been sorted to a degree by Congress and by President Trump. They've ordered everybody has to get a free test. You don't have to pay. But of course, as we know, there are big waits for testing. But I read an interesting article over the weekend. Okay, I've gotten tested. I have the virus. The treatment can then be incredibly expensive. A pneumonia hospitalization could cost up to $20,000. And even if you're insured, you could be on the hook for more than $1,000 personally. And imagine all of these people who had healthcare plans under their employers who may now be losing their jobs as a result of the lockdown. They're going to be in a very, very tricky situation if they lose their healthcare plans. You mentioning all of those figures that... This outbreak in the US is really highlighting the divide between the rich and basically everybody else. In the US, like many many other countries, it has a shortage of tests, but you have celebrities like Heidi Klum and Kris Jenner who've announced that they have tested negative for COVID-19, even though they had no symptoms at all, while those who are vulnerable are struggling to get any test. And yeah, it taps into the wider issue here in the US and it goes beyond healthcare. America, you know, capitalism at its best, the greatest country in the world when an economy is doing well. But when you compare it to Europe in terms of unemployment, free healthcare, free education, social supports, at times, at difficult times like this, it really is lacking. I think that is going to be highlighted more and more over the coming weeks and months. Another thing as well that's going to be analysed over and over again is Donald Trump's response to the outbreak, which you touched on earlier, Brian. It has been a ride of responses promising that COVID-19 would go away by itself, then playing golf, blaming China, blaming the media, blaming the Democrats and saying he's responding to it perfectly. This is a challenging time for all Americans. We're enduring a great national trial and we will prove that we can meet the moment. I want to assure the American people that we're doing everything we can each day to confront and ultimately defeat this horrible, invisible enemy. We're at war. The Trump response is Obviously, the massive focus over the last few weeks. I'll start by saying, in my view, a couple of things he got right. I think he was quite early in some of his travel bans. And this is something he repeatedly points to. He says, I closed off travel with China very early on. He did. And at the time, some people criticised him and said it was sort of a xenophobic, racist attitude. But I think travel bans are now the norm across the world. He has gotten some things right. Another thing he's doing is daily press briefings. Donald Trump had never darkened the door of the White House press briefing room mm. in the first three years of his presidency. Now he's giving these daily press conferences. He is appearing in front of the cameras. He's taking lots of questions. And that is, of course, a positive. And he did not used to do that before. I will say this, though. His press briefings are becoming very long and very rambling. He doesn't often go into a lot of detail. He speaks in generalities. He gives this sort of vague optimism and hope about it's all going to go away. It's going to bounce back faster. I have a feeling it's going to go faster than anybody expected. And he, then he expresses optimism in very specific things like treatments. And he lists drugs that he thinks, he said, oh, I have a gut feeling. I have a good feeling that this drug is going to help mm. treat the coronavirus. And then his own doctors and scientists and experts would stand up after him and be far, far less optimistic about the same treatments that he is speaking of. So, yes, we're seeing more of him on a daily basis. But the question is, how much quality information are we actually getting from him as he stands up on that podium? Because after around three years in office, he's been in office almost three years now, and championing that idea of steadying the economy, all of that is taking a sharp tumble and it's not what he needed. You're facing in to re-election in November. 
He considered himself now a wartime president, as he says. Now it's our time. We must sacrifice together because we are all in this together and we'll come through together. It's the invisible enemy. That's always the toughest enemy, the invisible enemy. But we're going to defeat the invisible enemy. I think we're going to do it even faster than we thought. Is that his new message and focus to bring his campaign forward and prove himself as a leader as everything else collapses around him, really? Like this is something that Donald Trump has never faced before. And Bob Schmuel, the professor from Notre Dame who writes in the Irish Independent, he had a good piece at the weekend about this. And he said, in the past, Donald Trump will attack an enemy by attacking them on Twitter, by going after them and really focusing into them. His new enemy is a virus and he can't attack it. He has given it a nickname, like he does to all his enemies. He's calling it the Chinese virus, which, of course, has sparked, again, allegations of racism. Then he defends this by saying, well, it is from China. But that's all he can do. He cannot attack it in the way he attacks everything else and in the way he has been victorious in many other ways when he encounters an enemy. This is uncharted territory for him. And actually, on the economy, we had interesting developments here in recent days. Democrats and Republicans trying to agree a 1.8 trillion, 1.8 trillion. I mean, the, the numbers are eye-watering here. A 1.8 trillion economic stimulus plan to try to help the American economy. But in recent days, that, that fell at a very early on hurdle. It didn't pass a procedural vote. Democrats didn't back Republicans. It didn't get the support Republicans needed to pass. And it's gone into renegotiation now. So, you know, politics is still politics. There is great unhappiness with uh, how they're trying to advance a proposal that would be great for giant corporations and leave everyone else behind. We're not here to create a slush fund for uh, Donald Trump uh, and his family or a slush fund for the Treasury Department to be able to hand out to their friends. We're here to help workers. We're here to help hospitals. You see governments around the world, you see political parties around the world who are usually opposing each other, coming together during this type of crisis. I don't think it helps the Democrats in the future if they're not choosing to work together with the Republicans during a time of crisis and still letting partisanship get in the way. Yeah, I think there was a lot of surprise, actually, that that vote failed early on in the Senate. They had been working very well together. They'd been praising of each other. There's been a week of national action and of great national solidarity. People are getting along. We're getting along uh, with uh, Republicans and Democrats and liberals and conservatives. And actually, it's a very nice thing to see. And you're right, it highlighted the partisanship that still exists there. Democrats coming out saying you're trying to bail out the big corporations and your wealthy buddies again. We need to look after the little guy. Republicans, as I say, furious. Republicans as well, interestingly, losing the strength of their majority in the Senate because one of their senators, Rand Paul, tested positive himself for the coronavirus. So obviously he had to go into treatment. And then two other senators, including Mitt Romney, had been in close contact with him. So they had to put themselves in self-isolation. So the Republicans' numbers had fallen. I think they felt in this time of crisis, we really should have come together. It wasn't to be Democrats failing to back that bill at an early stage. But as I say, presumably an agreement will be reached at some point. It'll have to be because the American economy, of course, is under such threat and such difficulty in the face of this virus. In a moment, we'll see how Trump supporters, uh, how they're feeling with their president's reaction to this outbreak with his leadership and his response. 
But first, if you listen to episode one of States of Mind, you may remember our guy behind Biden, Matthew Wiggler. Uh, Matthew, you had to go back home to New York. How are you? How are things over there at the moment? Um, things are all right. Um, I'm sad that I couldn't stay in Ireland any longer, um, but with travel suspensions and I was living in the dorms at Trinity at the Graduate Memorial Building, so we had to leave, unfortunately. Listen, it's great to check in with you. Um, we've been talking a lot on this episode of States of Mind about Donald Trump's response to the COVID-19 outbreak. And obviously his response is maybe not something you'd be too happy with, you being an ardent Democrat. And it's something important to tap into how a Donald Trump supporter is feeling right now. And you said to us off air, you may know somebody who we could speak to a bit closer to home. I certainly do. My own grandfather. And he's there with us now. Uh, Grandpa Norman Wax, live from Florida. Can you hear us okay? Yes, I can. How is it affecting life there in Florida? What life? (laughs) It's empty. Uh, We have a large Canadian population that comes down here for the winter, and they're all gone now, Uh, especially with the uh, problems at the border they wanted to get back across. Yeah, and an older population as well down in Florida. So is there a, a greater sense of people staying away and staying indoors and minding themselves? Yes, people, I think, are, uh, are consciously avoiding each other. When we go out for a walk, uh, we cross the street to stay away from other people. And uh, But on the other hand, uh, nature is totally, seems to be totally unaffected by this by the virus. The birds are flying, the fish are swimming, turtles... Weather is beautiful, and uh, nature doesn't seem to care. Grandpa, you are a supporter of Donald Trump, and for weeks he has really played down this crisis as we talk about it, insisting it would soon be over. But that has changed. Are you happy with the president's response? Could he have done more? Well, first first of all, uh, you're casting me as a supporter. Um, this, this is a choice. Um, uh, this is not a, uh, on my part, it's not uh, kumbaya that I have to like him or, or think he's a, he's a nice person. I just think that of what's, av- what's available, I prefer him. Uh, and when you talk about his playing down of the coronavirus, don't forget that when he stopped travel between China and the U.S., his his uh, 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 his uh, future uh, uh, contestant uh, Joe Biden uh, called him a xenophobe and a racist, and said he had gone too far. Uh, the press seems to have forgotten that. All. It's a good point that some things Donald Trump has gotten right. He got in early with those travel bans, and he did block the Chinese travel, and it did lead to accusations of racism. But recently, every time he stands up at the press podium now, he keeps calling it the Chinese virus and the Chinese virus. And people are saying he's being a bit racist there and he keeps casting it as a Chinese problem and it's coming from them. Now, he would say, well, look, that's a fact. It's coming from China. Like, what do you think of that element? And there's even suggestions that because he's being so anti-Chinese in all of this, that the Chinese who have helped other countries with like masks and doctors and advice, that they're not helping the U.S. as much as they should be. How do you think he's handling that? Well... I think what he's doing, you know, he, he, he does react and very often overreacts. But don't forget that the propaganda and, and cover-ups that were coming out of China were distinctly anti-American. 
at one point, the Chinese had accused the U.S. Army, who had sent some people over to participate in something, uh, that they actually planted the virus in China. Um, so I think he's sort of trying in his own, perhaps not the best way, to, to uh, um, uh, counter the Chinese tactics. And now China, who, who, we, who we know delayed everything and caused this, not, to, not that you blame them for causing it, but they certainly made the situation worse. Now they're suddenly the good guys uh, helping out all around the world, blah, 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 blah. And I think it, uh, he's trying to balance out the scale. Maybe not in the best way, but he doesn't do anything in the, in the, in the most uh, 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 nicest way possible. But that's him. How would you rate him during this crisis out of 10? Uh, who are the other nine? <laughs> I, I don't know if I could... Give himself a 10 out of 10, that but that's typical Donald Trump, I guess. You know, he is an egotist, and I I know he rates himself as a 10, 10 for 10, but I don't think, you know, we're all human. I, I don't think anybody could, is perfect, and certainly not him. On the other hand, I, th- I think he's risen to the occasion, and uh, I think he's doing... I think he's certainly doing the best that he's capable that he can. Is he someone that you'd vote for again? Well, again, you know, it depends upon his on his opponent. Uh, would I vote for him again against uh, an opponent that I like better? No. Uh, if I liked him better than the opponent, then I would support him again. Right now, my feeling is that I would support him again. Being a Donald Trump supporter and voting for Donald Trump, has that kind of driven a wedge between family life and maybe friendships that you have over there? Uh, To a a degree, because, um, uh, you know, I don't know if it's so much a family. uh, It it also goes into age. You know, uh, we're on with my grandson, Matthew, and I recall... I mean, I don't have a problem with any of his ideas and his thoughts and his desires, but uh, I I remember myself at that age when I thought I knew everything and I was and I was absolutely positive that I was right. Uh, I don't feel that way anymore, so I'm I'm a little more giving as to other people's position. Matthew, what's your response to that? I'm interested to hear what you have to say. I could hear you giggling in the background. <laughs> But I think that um, my grandpa is onto something. I think that there is um, certainly an age divide um, that exists in this country and within many families where younger people are more inclined to support more tolerant, more inclusive policies. Um, And that's one of the reasons why I actually support Joe Biden is I think that he has a unifying message that can bring together people of all ages with progressive policies that bring about some of the change that younger Americans want to see um, with rhetoric and a long record of experience um, that can bring in older Americans and help to bring the country together and heal the soul of a divided nation. One of the things I, I, I bring up is that having voted for uh, Trump was trying, I don't want to be a Trump apologizer, but I'm, I'm seen as a, as a total Trumper and a right winger. But in reality, you know, 
it's not that I'm I'm pro a lot of things. For instance, I'm not I'm not actually a, a registered Republican. To me, it's not you know like one or the other or. It uh, just hate Trump enough to that nothing else matters. It's getting rid of him. Well, don't you think? I mean, you said that you're confident that you voted the right way in 2016. But even just looking at this crisis right now, um, Donald Trump closed the White House office um, dedicated to pandemic monitoring and response that was created by the Obama Biden administration in the wake of the Ebola crisis. Donald Trump cut. Um, by a significant amount, um, the budget of the CDC, the budget for pandemic response against congressional recommendations, um, you went out and did that, and people were warning at the time. This was, you know, back in 2018, um, that this was going to make us more vulnerable to a pandemic. Grandpa Norman Waxman, I would love to have a seat at your dinner table because I bet you have the most interesting conversations and politically charged I'm just glad there's socially distancing in place here. Uh, This could come to blows, I think, Jackie. It's just as well we've been told to avoid each other. (laughs) Absolutely. Listen, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on States of Mind. And I hope we can chat to you soon again as the election approaches, whenever that's going to be. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for the Okay, take Goodbye, care. Goodbye, Matthew. I love you. <laughs> love you too, Papa. <laughs> and talk soon. Thanks, guys. So, Brian, the thing is with the COVID-19 outbreak is that campaigns are being taken online because there are no rallies and some primaries have been postponed to June as well. That's right. It has completely changed the Democratic race. As we know, when we last left off, Joe Biden was the frontrunner. He remains the frontrunner. He is almost after amassing an unbeatable lead of delegates ahead of his rival Bernie Sanders. But it has utterly changed campaigning. There are no more Mm -hmm. big rallies, many primaries being moved, postponed. It's all about virtual town halls, virtual fundraisers, online events that the various candidates are holding. Joe Biden said in recent days that a TV studio has been set up in one of his recreational rooms in his home in Delaware. He's going to start broadcasting daily updates from his home on the coronavirus because, of course, remember, Donald Trump is getting these daily briefings and these daily updates on primetime TV. So if you're looking at a campaign in a few months' time, no doubt Joe Biden feels, I need to be out there as well. He was being criticised in some quarters. A hashtag, where is Joe, was trending on Twitter. Where is he? He's gone silent. We're not seeing enough of him. So I think he feels he needs to get out front and centre of this and will start providing his own daily briefings in the coming days on the coronavirus. At the time of recording this podcast, ultimate disclaimer here, Bernie Sanders is kind of still in the race, still holding on. I think his fingers must be going quite white from clasping on to that cliff edge. A man I have been speaking to, Brian, is Garrison Nelson. He has known Bernie Sanders for more than 40 years, but is also a professor in law, politics and political behaviour at the University of Vermont. And this is what he had to say about the whole election and campaign. Well, a number of Bernie loyalists are very dejected right now. My daughter in particular, who is very close to Bernie's wife, Jane, went to high school with Jane's daughters and actually seconded Bernie's nomination at the 2016 convention in Philadelphia. Bernie actually dropped 34 points in his percentage in the Vermont uh, primary uh, last month. So he is uh, 
quite as popular uh, as a presidential candidate as he had as he was. Would he be the type of man to stand down now or keep going for the sake of his message? Keep going. Yeah, he's going to keep going. He was blasted for uh, hanging on much too late against Hillary Clinton four years ago. And, uh, you know, he does not want to have a reputation of being a spoiler. But he will stay in the race and give his message. He wants his message out there. He's well aware of the fact that he's not going to be nominated. It's a great disappointment, but he, he won't be nominated. Do you think the COVID-19 outbreak changed people's minds, that they were less willing to take a risk with someone like Bernie Sanders, who some see as too far to the left? Uh, that is absolutely correct. It's a, Bernie has, Bernie's message has not changed. Uh, and consequently, uh, you get a little bored with hearing the same thing. Uh, there's a great concern about stability and predictability. And so that has really been the, uh, the selling point uh, for Joe Biden. There are so many things at play here in the United States and around the world at the moment. The human cost of the coronavirus, the economic toll, how long this will go on for and the course it will take. Who knows? Some talk that we'll even see the conventions going ahead. The Democratic convention due to take place in July, the Republican due to take place in August. That would be a mass, huge gathering of people. So right now, under current circumstances, no, presumably they would not go ahead. The sense is the election would still go ahead, but voting could be very, very different. But certainly huge question marks as we embark on the end of the Democratic primary season to see who the eventual nominee will be and huge question marks over how that final election campaign will be run in these most unusual of circumstances that we're living in. Oh, Brian, I think you, me and everybody else can agree, can agree that we just hope that this is over very, very soon. Uh, thanks so much and take care, Brian. We'll chat to you soon. Thanks, Jackie. Talk soon.